Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 234. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Gorgeous day outside. Let's just hope that weather, what we had back a couple of weeks ago, has gone for good there now. It's beautiful outside. Tell you what's coming in today, sure. We have film talk with our very own Dennis M. Lane, all the way there in South Africa, Dennis, sir. Next up is Main Fiction, and it's one of these Hugo-nominated stories. It is The Homecoming by Mike Resnick. Yes, we've managed to grab one of those. Next up is the fantastic Adam Pratt with his cheapskate to look at the reviews, and he's looking at Trader's Shares, Quarter Share. This is the collection by Nathan Lowell. Then at the end of Adam's little review, I've got... I had a chat with Nathan, and we're playing the, the first kind of chapter, or, you know, 10 minutes worth for first chapters. We're playing that as well, so you can have a, a little dip into that and just see what you think of that actual book, if you like it or not. Like you say, listen to what Adam says. And I've just finished that one as well, just about two days ago, just finished it. So I'll have a little kind of chat about it afterwards as well. So that is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. First up then is Film Talk, Dennis Sir. A review from the Jacaranda City. Hello again from a crisp and cool Pretoria. The leaves are turning, the nights are getting colder, and I've just spent a few days in the Kalahari Desert. This led me to think about the most poetic of the desert movies of the 1950s. Also, with the hype of 3D apparently dying away, I thought that this would be a good time to look at an earlier incarnation of the craze. Deserts, poetic language, the glories of 3D. Yes, today I'm taking a look at It Came From Outer Space. 
The movie was released in 1953 and was Universal's first to be filmed in what they called Three Dimension. The screenplay was by Harry Essex, who, a year later, wrote Creature from the Black Lagoon, and was adapted from a Ray Bradbury story. In 2004, Bradbury published four versions of his screen treatment for the movie as a single volume. He had offered two outlines to the studio, one with malicious aliens, the other with benign aliens, and he said that, I wanted to treat the invaders as beings who were not dangerous. And that was very unusual. The studio picked the right concept, and I stayed on. The film was directed by Jack Arnold, one of the great science fiction movie directors of the 50s. I talked about him when I reviewed The Incredible Shrinking Man recently. The dark, moody tone is classic Arnold. I don't usually mention the technical roles, but here I think that it is warranted. Cinematography was by Clifford Stein, whose career spanned the original 1933 version of King Kong, where he was special effects cameraman, up to 1974's Earthquake, where he was responsible for special photography. The movie was edited by Paul Weatherwax, who had previously won an Oscar in 1948 for editing The Naked City, and would later win a second Oscar for editing Around the World in 80 Days. The starring role of John Putnam is played by Richard Carlson, who had previously played John Good in King Solomon's Mines and can be seen as Dr. David Reed in Creature from the Black Lagoon. He also played Professor Norman E. Van Zandt in The Power in 1968, so there's a very good chance that we'll hear more about him in future reviews. The movie co-stars Barbara Rush as Ellen Fields, who played Joyce Hedron in When Worlds Collide, Marion in Robin and the Seven Hoods, and went on to guest star in pretty much every major TV series of the 60s, 70s and 80s. Another face that you may recognise is George, one of the two telephone linemen, played by Russell Johnson, who was the professor on Gilligan's Island. The movie was filmed using Universal's own three-dimension process, which employed two completely separate films that had to be synchronised to produce the 3D effect a movie version of the tried-and-tested stereoscopic photographs that go back to the 1860s. In contrast to many 3D movies, it was composed in a very restrained way, the 3D effect being used to bring depth to the film, rather than the more popular method of throwing things at the camera. Originally, the screenplay called for the aliens to be unseen, but as a respectable $750,000 was being spent on the production, it was decided that we needed to see the aliens. The first design for the alien xenomorph was rejected, but was later used as the basis for the Metalunan mutant in This Island Earth. The one-eyed xenomorph that does make it to the screen is definitely ugly, but hardly the unfathomable ugliness that cannot be gazed upon by human eyes. The plot revolves around author and amateur astronomer John Putnam and his schoolteacher almost fiancée Ellen Fields, who watch what they think is a meteor crashing into the desert. They rush to the site, and John sees an alien spaceship just before it's covered by a landslide. He is ridiculed by the townspeople, the sheriff and the local media, with, for example, the headline, Stargazer Sees Martians. Ellen is initially unsure of what to believe herself, but is soon drawn into helping John. When the two telephone linemen, Frank and George, disappear, only to turn up acting in a mechanical way, John and Ellen try to warn the town of the danger. And Ellen's line, If we've been seeing things, it's because we did see them, is the perfect response to anyone being mocked for their gullibility. John confronts the alien copies of the kidnapped workers, 
And he's told, Keep away. We don't want to hurt you. We don't want to hurt anyone. Later, one of the copies phones John, wanting to meet, and the sheriff takes him out to the mine through which the alien ship can be reached. John is told that they are repairing the ship and that they'll leave that night. He insists on seeing the real shape of the alien and, when he does, covers his face in horror. If an enlightened scientist like him cannot stand to see the aliens, then there is no way that the population at large would accept them. When Ellen is also taken, the sheriff organises a posse to attack the mine and John races there to warn the visitors. After a confrontation with the alien copy of Ellen, he promises those working on the ship that he'll help them. He leads the hostages out of the mine and blows up the entrance just before the posse can attack. As the humans discuss the death of the aliens with the collapse of the mine, the earth shakes and the ship leaves. They're all relieved that the aliens are gone, but John, on a positive note, ends the movie by saying that, yes, they are gone, just for now. It wasn't the right time for us to meet, but there'll be other nights, other stars for us to watch. They'll be back. For those of you interested in looking at the different ways that the paranoia and red-under-the-bed atmosphere of the 50s was translated into science fiction, try watching this movie and then following it with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was made three years later. There are some close parallels, but the whole thrust of the movie goes off in the opposite direction to Bradbury's idea of the benign alien. The poetic language about the desert also seemed to be very Ray Bradbury in tone. And the cinematography is in the same vein, where, visually, telephone wires are used as a common thread throughout a number of scenes. The score was also innovative. There was heavy use of the theremin, which at the time had not yet become a cliché, and was written by three composers, Hermann Stein, Irving Goetz and Henry Mancini, to bring a different feel and flavour to different sections of the movie. Another innovation was to film sections through the fish-eyed perspective of the aliens. Also, it's one of the first movies where we see the scientist hero established, a function that Richard Carlson would perform again in Creature from the Black Lagoon. All in all, It Came from Outer Space was an innovative movie that tried hard to go beyond the B-movie clichés of the genre. And, in the most part, it succeeded. I would recommend it to you all. While watching it, you may feel that you have seen many of the approaches and techniques before. Perhaps you have. But this film used them first. Looking outside, it's a clear, crisp evening, and so, inspired by John Putnam, I think I'll wind up now and drive out into the bush to look at the stars. Dennis, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Next up is The Homecoming by Mike Resnick. And like I said, this one is up for Hugo Award for Best Short Story this year. And, I mean, this is the kind of the amazing thing. This is Mike Resnick's 36th Hugo nomination. Do you know what I mean? How can you kind of... Well, it is. It's a record. You know what I mean? There is no other writer has kind of achieved that. I mean, always, if you go to the Internet Science Fiction Database, this is what I just like. I mean, I'm kind of lost in there all the time. 
Mike Resnick, you know, if you have a look at his short fiction, and I kind of judge this where, you know, where they kind of dip the toes in waters. 1977, he had The Last Dog. And I'm not joking when I say, like, how many, you know, no wonder Mike's got this record because he's just got oodles of, it's just got oodles of stuff, but the short stories are staggering. And he's right up to date. There's a forthcoming one, which is May the 29th. 2012, you've got Siren's Song, which is going to come out in Going Into Stella, which is edited by Jack McDivitt. On Mike's site, he's got like a little snippet from the Wikipedia. And I'll just read out, you know, if anyone who doesn't know Mike Resnick, you bloody well should. This is what Wikipedia says. Mike Resnick is an American science fiction author. He, he was executive editor at Jim Bain's Universe. A native of Chicago, Resnick attended the University of Chicago from 59 to 61, where he met his future wife, Carol. The couple married in 1961. In the 60s and early 70s, Resnick wrote more than 200 adult novels under the pseudonyms, edited seven tabloid newspapers, edited a trio of men's magazines. He also produced a weekly column on horse racing for more than a decade. And for 11 years, wrote a monthly column on purebred collies, which he and his wife have bred and exhibited. His wife, Carol, is also a writer, as is his daughter, Laura Resnick, who is an award-winning science fiction and fantasy author. Resnick's papers consist of at least 125 boxes are in the Special Collections Library of the University of South Florida in Tampa. He will be the guest of honour at Tricon 7, the 2012 Worldcon held in Chicago. Larry's going to be there as well to support Starship Sofa as well. I like it, you know, because like Mike says there, you know, he wrote, he wrote this weekly column for horse racing as well. Well, I, I don't know if anyone's seen my Twitter shouts out. We had the Grand National over in England on Saturday. Saturday just gone. And I came third. Yes, I had, I covered myself as well. I had an each way bet on it was Seabass. And it came in third. And I just, I just was jumping all over the place like come on run <laughs> i was just to take away by the time i was drained physically so i'll put a link on the mic site over there because what i like about mic site as well it's just so much information and he's got his own ebook shop there as well so please pop over there mike honestly like i say thank you for letting starships over get this story narrated it is narrated by matthew stevens Matt's done a couple of work for Starship Sofa, and hopefully we'll, we'll go, we are, we're getting a few more from Matt as well. Matt, thank you so much. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. The Homecoming, by Mike Resnick. I don't know which bothers me more, my lumbago or my arthritis. One day it's one, one day it's the other. They can cure cancer and transplant every damned organ in your body. You'd think they could find some way to get rid of aches and pains. Let me tell you, growing old is not for sissies. I remember that I was having a typical dream. Well, typical for me, anyway. I was climbing the four steps to my front porch, only when I got to the third step, there were six more. So I climbed them, and then there were ten more, and it went on and on. I'd probably still be climbing them if the creature hadn't woke me up. It stood next to my bed, staring down at me. I blinked a couple of times, trying to focus my eyes, and stared back. Sure, this wasn't just an extension of my dream. It was maybe six feet tall, its skin a glistening almost metallic silver with multifaceted bright red eyes, like an insect. Its ears were pointed and bat-like and moved independently of its head and each other. Its mouth jutted out a couple of inches like some kind of tube and looked like it was only good for sucking fluids. 
Its arms were slender, with no hint of the muscles required to move them, and its fingers were thin and incredibly elongated. It was as weird a nightmare figure as I'd dreamt up in years. Finally, it spoke in a voice that sounded more like a set of chimes than anything else. Hello, Dad, it said. That's when I knew I was awake. So this is what you look like, I growled, swinging my feet over the side of the bed and sitting up. What the hell are you doing here? I'm glad to see you too, he replied. You didn't answer my question, I said, feeling around for my slippers. I heard about Mom. Not from you, of course, and I wanted to see her once more before the end. Can you see through those things? I asked, indicating his eyes. Better than you can. Big surprise. Hell, anyone can see better than I can. How'd you get in here, anyway? I said as I got to my feet. The furnace was as old and tired as I was, and there was a chill in the air, so I put on my robe. You haven't changed the front door's code since I left. He looked around the room. You haven't painted the place either. The lock's supposed to check your retinogram and read your DNA or something. It did. They haven't changed. I looked him up and down. The hell they haven't. He seemed about to reply, then thought better of it. Finally, he said, How is she? She has her bad days and her worst days, I answered. She's the old Julia maybe two or three times a week for a minute or two, but that's all. She can still speak, and she still recognizes me. I paused. She won't recognize you, of course, but nobody else you ever knew will either. How long has she been like this? Maybe a year. You should have told me, he said. Why? I asked. You gave up being her son and became whatever it is you are now. I'm still her son, and you had my contact information. I stared at him. Well, you're not my son, not anymore. I'm sorry you feel that way, he replied. Suddenly, he sniffed the air. It smells stale. Tired old houses are like tired old men, I said. They don't function on all cylinders. You should move to a smaller, newer place. This house and me, we've grown old together. Not everyone wants to move to Alpha, whatever the hell it is. He looked around. Where is she? In your old room, I said. He turned, walked out into the hall. Haven't you replaced that thing yet? He asked, indicating the old wall table. It was scarred and wobbly when I still lived here. It's just a table. It holds whatever I put on it. That's all it has to do. He looked up at the ceiling. The paint's peeling, too. I'm too old to do it myself, and painters cost money. I'm living on a fixed income. He didn't reply to that, but walked down the hall and was fiddling with the door handle when I joined him. It's locked, he said. Sometimes she gets up and goes for a walk and then can't remember how to get back home. I grimaced. I can probably keep her here another few months, but then she's going to have to move into a special care facility. I uttered the code word and the door opened. Julia was propped up on her pillow, staring at a blank Hollis screen across the room, unmindful of a lock of gray hair that had worked its way loose and obscured her left eye's vision. The channel she was on had finished broadcasting for the night. 
but it didn't make any difference to her. She was content watching the flickering gray cube. I ordered the bed lamp to turn on and gently pinned the hair back up. Now that the room was illuminated, I could see our son staring at it. The holographs of him when he played on the high school basketball team were still on the wall, as well as the one of him in his tux at the prom and his trophy for winning the science contest remained atop the dresser, though it needed dusting. Just above it was his framed diploma from college. Lining the walls were other photos and holographs from when he was still a baby until a month before he'd undergone what Julia always referred to as his change I could see his face twitching as he looked around at the memorabilia of his youth, and I felt like I could almost read his thoughts. They've turned the damn place into a shrine, which I suppose we had, but to what he had been, not to what he was now. And I'd moved her in here because she was comforted by things from the past, even things she could no longer name. Hello, Jordan, said Julia, smiling at me. How are you? I'm fine, Julia. Do you mind if I turn off the holo? I was enjoying it, she said. How are you? I ordered the screen to deactivate. Is it August yet? she asked. No, Julia, I said patiently. It's February, just like it was yesterday. Oh, she said, frowning. I thought it might be August. Then a friendly smile. How are you? Suddenly, our son stepped forward. Hello, mother. She stared at him and smiled. You are really quite beautiful. He reached out and took her hand with those incredibly long, stick-like fingers before I could stop him. I've missed you, mother, he said. He seemed like he was choked with emotion, but I couldn't tell because his voice never changed from those musical chimes. It was so unlike a human voice that I don't know how we were able to understand him, but somehow we did. Is it Halloween already? asked Julia. Are you dressed for a party? No, mother. This is the way I look. Well, I think you're beautiful. She stopped and frowned. Do I know you? He smiled sadly, I thought. You did once. I am your son. She was silent for a moment, and I knew she was trying to remember. I think I had a little boy once, but I can't recall his name. My name is Philip. Philip. Philip, she repeated. Finally, she shook her head. No, I think it was Jordan. Jordan is your husband, said Philip. I'm your son. I think I had a little boy once, she said. Her face went blank for a moment. Then, is it Halloween already? No, he said gently. I'll let you go back to sleep. We'll talk in the morning. That will be fine, she said. Do I know you? I'm your son, he said. I'm sure I had a son a long time ago, she said. How are you? I could see a crystal tear run down his silver cheek. He tenderly laid her hand on the bed and stepped back. I activated the holoscreen, found a station that was still transmitting, killed the sound, and left her staring happily at it as I followed Philip out into the hall, locking the door behind me. 
We walked to the cluttered kitchen with its ancient appliances and the three cracked tiles on the floor. Each of us had been responsible for one of them. I found the room homey and comforting, but I saw him looking at a burn spot on a counter that had been there since he'd accidentally made it as a kid, and for just an instant I felt guilty about never having fixed it. You should have told me about her he said when he'd gotten his emotions under control. You shouldn't have left or become whatever it is that you are. Damn it, she's my mother. The chimes were louder. I assumed he was yelling or snapping. There was nothing you could have done. I ordered the refrigerator door to open and pulled out a beer. You want one before you go back to wherever the hell you came from? I thought about it and frowned. Can you drink human drinks? He didn't answer, but walked over and grabbed a beer. I could see that his mouth wouldn't be able to accommodate the container, so I just watched and waited for him to ask for a glass or maybe a bowl. He knew I was staring at him, but it didn't seem to bother him. Instead, something, not a tongue and not quite a straw, slid out of his mouth, and when it was a few inches long, he inserted it into the top of the container— He swallowed a few seconds later, and I knew he was somehow getting the beer into his mouth. He set the container down and stared at an old pennant I had stuck on the wall when he was a little boy. "'You're still a Python's fan,' he observed. "'Always. How are they doing?' There was a time when he actually cared, but that was many years ago. "'They haven't had a decent quarterback since Christ was a corporal,' I answered." But you root for them anyway? You don't stop rooting for a team just because they've fallen on hard times. A team or a parent, he said. I didn't know how to reply to that, so I remained silent, and after a moment he spoke again. I know there are medications for Alzheimer's. I assume you've tried them? There are all kinds of senile dementias. They call them all Alzheimer's, but they aren't. They haven't yet found out how to cure the one she's got. There are specialists on other worlds. Maybe one of them could have done something. You're the space traveler, I said bitterly. Where were you when she might have been cured? He stared at me. I stared back, determined not to look away first. Why are you so angry at me? I know you cared for me once. I've never hurt you. I never took a penny from you once I got out of college. I never... You deserted us, I said. You deserted your mother. You deserted me. You deserted your planet. You even deserted your species. That poor woman down the hall can't remember the name of her own son, but she can remember that people only look like you at Halloween. It's my job, damn it. There are thousands of exobiologists right here on Earth, I snapped. I know only one who turned into a silver-skinned monster with red eyes. I was offered an opportunity that has been afforded very few men and women, he replied. I took it. Even with the chimes, he couldn't keep the resentment out of his voice. Most fathers would have been proud. I stared at him for a moment, amazed that he still didn't understand... I'm supposed to be proud that you became a thing that hasn't got a trace of humanity left in him, I said at last. He stared right back through those multifaceted insect eyes. 
You really believe there is nothing human left of me? He asked curiously. Look in a mirror, I told him. Don't I remember you telling me, back when I was a boy, that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover? That's right. Well, he said, I just saw one of your pages slide out and suck up the beer. He sighed deeply to the delicate tinkling of chimes. Would you have been happier if I couldn't drink it? I seriously considered it for a minute. No, that wouldn't have made me happier. I told him when I'd formulated my answer in terms even he could understand. You know what would have made me happier? Grandchildren. A son who visited us for Christmas. A son I could leave the house to now that it's finally paid off. I never ask you to follow in my footsteps, attend my college, go into my business, even live in this town. Would expecting you to want to be a normal human being be so goddamn wrong of a father? No, it wouldn't, he admitted. Then, for better or worse, you've lived your life. I have the right to live mine. I shook my head. Your life ended eleven years ago. You're living some alien creature's life now. He cocked his head to one side and studied me curiously. It seemed almost bird-like. Which bothers you more, that I left Earth or that I became what I am? Six of one, a half dozen of the other. You knew you were the center of your mother's life, but you left her and went to the far end of the galaxy. Not quite the far end, he said, and I couldn't tell from the chimes whether that was sarcastic or sardonic or simply a straight answer. And my mother wouldn't have wanted me to stay here when I wanted to be out there. You broke her heart, I snapped. If I did, then I'm truly sorry. She spent years wondering why, back when she could still wonder, I continued. So did I. You had so much promise and so many opportunities, damn it. You could have been anything you wanted. The sky was the limit. I became what I wanted, he said gently. And the stars were my limit. Damn it, Philip, I said, though I had promised myself never to call him by his human name. You could have spent your whole life here and never seen a thousandth of the things Earth has to offer. That's true, but others have already seen them. He paused and turned his palms up in a very human gesture. I wanted to see things no one else had ever seen. I don't know what's up there, I said, but how different can it be? What makes our mountains and deserts and rivers so boring for you? He sighed, a delicate high-pitched tinkling sound. I tried to explain that to you eleven years ago, he answered at last. You didn't understand then. You don't understand now, he paused. Maybe you just can't. Probably not, I agreed. I walked to the cabinet with the missing knob and opened the door with my fingernails the way I always do. You still haven't replaced the knob, he observed. I remember the day I pulled it off. I expected to be punished. You just laughed like I'd done something cute. You should have seen the expression on your face when it came away in your hand, like you expected me to send you off to prison. I felt a smile fighting to reach my mouth, and I pushed it back. Anyway, it still opens. I reached in, 
pulled down a couple of small bottles and then put them in my pocket. Mother's medication? I nodded, holding them up. She gets four different kinds in the morning and two at night. I'll give them to her a little later. I pulled out another bottle. I thought you just said she only gets two pills at night. She does, I said. I held up the third bottle. These are sugar pills. I leave them on the dresser for her. Sugar pills? He repeated with what I assume passed for a puzzled frown. She thinks she can still medicate herself. She can't, of course, but this gives her the illusion that she can. And if she takes six one day and forgets to take any the next day, it doesn't make any difference. That's very thoughtful of you. I've loved her for close to half a century, I answered. I could have put her in a home and just visited her every day, or every tenth day she probably wouldn't know the difference. But I do this because I love her. Even if she doesn't know it, she has to be more comfortable in her own home, surrounded by the bits and pieces of her life. That's why I moved her into your room instead of the guest room. The photos, the trophies, even that old catcher's mitt in the closet. That's all she has left of you. I glared at him. I didn't walk out of her life for eleven years and come back only when she was past remembering me. He just looked at me but made no reply. Damn it, I snapped. Couldn't you have said it was a secret mission for the military, even if it was a lie? You'd have found out soon enough that I was lying. I wouldn't have tried to. We'd have been proud that you were serving your country or your planet or whatever the hell you were serving. Is that it? He demanded, suddenly angry. You could lose a son to another world as long as he didn't enjoy it, as long as someone might be shooting at him? That's not what I said. I replied defensively. That's precisely what you said. He stared at me with those insect eyes for a long minute. You would never have understood. She might have, but you wouldn't. Then why did you never tell her? I tried. Well, you sure as hell didn't succeed, I said bitterly. And it's too late to try again. She's not the one who hates me, he said. I had already moved out and started my own life when this opportunity arose. You make it sound like I was your support network. I was an independent adult living six states away. He paused. I still don't know which bothers you more. That I left the planet at all, or that I left it looking like this. One day you were a member of our family. Four months later, you weren't even a member of the human race. I still am, he insisted. Look in a mirror. He placed a twelve-inch long forefinger to his head. It's what's in here that counts. They say the eyes are the windows to the soul, I replied. Yours belong to an insect. Just what the hell did you want from me, he demanded. Did you want me to go into business with you? No. Of course not. Would you have disowned me if I'd been sterile and couldn't give you any grandchildren? Don't be silly. What if I'd moved halfway around the world? I might not have seen you more than once a decade if I had. Would you have disowned me as you did eleven years ago? Nobody disowned you, I pointed out, trying to keep my temper. You disowned us. He sighed deeply. At least I think he did. With those chimes, I couldn't be sure. 
Did you ever think to ask me why? He said at last. No. If it bothered you so much, why didn't you? Because it was your choice. I think he frowned. I couldn't tell for sure, not with that face. I don't understand. If it was a necessity, something you had to do to save your life or something like that, I'd have asked. But since it was a freely made choice, no, I, I didn't care why, why you did it, only that you did it. He looked long and hard at me. All those years that I lived here, and even after I left, I thought you loved me. I loved Philip, I said, and then grimaced. I don't know you. Suddenly I heard Julia knocking weakly at her door and walked down the shop-worn hallway to unlock it. I hadn't noticed how threadbare the carpet had become, or the crack in the plaster, but I saw him looking at it, so I looked too and made up my mind to do something about it one of these days. I uttered the code word softly enough that she couldn't hear it on the other side of the door, and a moment later it swung open. She was standing there, barefoot in her nightgown, thin and frail, her arms and legs like toothpicks with withered flesh on them, looking mildly puzzled. "'What's the matter?' I asked. "'I thought I heard you arguing with someone.' Her gaze fell on Philip. Hello, she said. Have we met before? He took her hand very gently and gave her what seemed like a wistful smile, though I couldn't be sure. A long time ago. My name is Julia. She extended a wrinkled, liver-spotted hand. And mine is Philip. A frown crossed her once beautiful face. I think I knew someone called Philip once. She paused, then smiled. That's a very pretty costume you're wearing. Thank you. And I love your voice, she continued. It sounds like the wind chimes on our porch when a summer breeze blows through them. I'm glad it pleases you, said the creature that used to be our son. Can you sing? He shrugged, and his whole body seemed to sparkle as the light reflected off it. I really don't know, he admitted. I've never tried. You look hungry, she said. Can I make you something to eat? I prodded him, and when he looked at me, I very briefly shook my head no. She'd already set the kitchen on fire twice before I started ordering all our meals delivered. He picked up on it instantly. No, thank you. I ate just before I arrived. That's too bad, she said. I'm a good cook. I'll bet you make a wonderful Denver pudding. That had always been his favorite dessert. The best, she said, glowing with pride. I like you, young man. Then a puzzled frown. You are a man, aren't you? Yes, I am. Is it Halloween? Not yet. Why are you wearing that costume, then? Would you really like to know about it? Very much, she said. Suddenly she shivered. But it's chilly standing here barefoot in the doorway. Would you mind very much if I got under the covers while we chatted? You can sit right next to the bed, and we can be nice and cozy. Jordan? 
Could you make me some hot chocolate? And maybe some for... I've forgotten your name. Philip, he said. Philip, she repeated, frowning. Philip, I'm sure I knew a Philip once, a long time ago. I'm sure you did too, he said softly. Well, come along. Julia turned, walked back into her room, and climbed into the bed that had once belonged to Philip, propping herself up with some pillows and pulling the blanket and comforter up to her armpits. He followed her and stood next to the bed. There's no need to stand, young man, she told him. Pull up a chair. Thank you, he said, getting the chair he'd used while writing his master's thesis on his computer and carrying it over so that he was sitting right next to her. Jordan, I think we'd like some hot chocolate. I don't know if he drinks it, I replied. I'd very much like some, he said. Good, said Julia. You can bring two cups on a tray, one for me and one for... Excuse me, but I don't know your name. It's Philip, and you must call me Julia. Why don't I just call you Mother, he suggested. She frowned in puzzlement. Why would you do that? He reached out and very gently held her hand. No reason, Julia. Jordan, she said, I think I'd like some hot chocolate. She turned to Philip. Would you like some too, young man? You are a man, aren't you? I am, and I would. I left to get the hot chocolate before she asked again. I went out to the kitchen mixed up a fair-sized pan. I don't know why. There were only two of them, and I don't drink the stuff myself. And I was about to pour a pair of cups. Then I remembered the shape of his hands and fingers and decided he was less likely to spill a mug. So I got the old chipped pythons mug he'd given me for my birthday when he was about nine or ten years old. I think he'd saved up a month's allowance to buy it. I looked at it fondly for a moment and wondered if he'd recognize it. Then I remembered who, or rather what, I was pouring it for and got on with it. The whole process took me maybe three or four minutes start to finish. I put the cup and the mug on a tray, added a spoon for Julia since she liked to stir everything whether it needed it or not, and folded a pair of napkins. Then I picked up the tray and carried it back to the bedroom. Just put it on the table, please, Jordan, she said, and I placed it on her nightstand. She turned back eagerly to Philip. What were they like? To this day, I don't know how a face like his could look wistful, but it did. They are the most beautiful things I've ever seen, he said, his voice chiming delicately. I want to say they're transparent, but that's not exactly right. Their bodies are actually prisms, separating the rays of the sun and casting a hundred colors on the ground beneath them as they fly. They sound wonderful, said Julia, her face more alive than I'd seen it in months. They swarm by the tens of thousands. It's as if a miles-long kaleidoscope has taken wing, and the ever-changing colors cover an area the size of a small city. How fascinating, she said enthusiastically. 
What do they eat? A shrug. No one knows. No one? There are only about forty men and women on the planet, and none of us has yet climbed the crystal mountains where they nest. Crystal mountains? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. She repeated, What a pretty picture. It's not a world like any you've ever imagined, Julia, he said. There are plants and animals no one's ever even dreamed of. Plants? she asked. How different can a plant be? I saw some potted plants in your living room, right by that old piano that's probably still out of tune, he said. Did you ever talk to them? Of course, said Julia. She flashed him a smile, but they never answer. He returned her smile. Mine do. She clutched his hand with both of hers, as if she was afraid he might leave before telling her about his plants. "'What do they say?' she asked. "'I'll bet they talk about the weather.' He shook his head. Mostly they talk about mathematics, and once in a while about philosophy. "'I knew about those things once,' she said, and then added hazily, "'I think.' They have no sense of self-preservation, so they're not concerned with rain or fertilizer, continued Philip. They don't care if they're eaten or not. They use their intelligence to solve abstract problems, because to them, all problems are abstract. I couldn't help but speak up. They really exist? They really exist. What do they look like? Not like any plant on earth. Most of them have translucent flowers, and almost all of them have rigid protrusions like, I don't know, like tiny branches that rub together. That's how they communicate. So you speak in chimes, and they speak in little clicks, asked Julia. How do you understand each other? The first few men to study them spent half a century learning the meanings behind their clicking and rubbing. 
Now we both speak to my computer and it translates each of our languages into the others. What do you say to a plant? Not much, he admitted. They're very different. But after you speak to them for any length of time, you know why men fight so hard to stay alive. Nothing matters to them. They accomplish nothing and they care about nothing, not even their mathematics. They have no hopes, no dreams, no goals, he paused. But they are unique. I'd, I began and then stopped. I'd been about to say I'd like to see one of those plants, but I didn't want him to think he'd said anything of interest to me. Just then Julia reached for her cup, but either her vision wasn't working right or her hand was shaking. They both fail a lot these days, her eyes and her hands. And it began tottering, about to spill over. Philip moved his fingers so fast my eyes couldn't follow it. And he righted the cup before three drops had fallen to the tray. Thank you, young man, she said. You're welcome. He glanced at me, and his expression said, Whatever you think of what I've become, that's something I couldn't have done twelve years ago. There was a momentary silence, then Julia spoke up again. Is it Halloween? Not for a while yet. Oh, that's right. You wore your costume on some other world. Tell me more about the animals. Some of them are beautiful. Some of them are huge and awesome. Some are petite and delicate, and all of them are different from anything you've ever seen or imagined. Do they have... She frowned. I can't remember the word. Take your time, he said, holding her hand in one of his and patting it gently with the other to comfort her. I've got all night. I can't remember, she said, close to tears. Her whole body tensed as she reached for a word that might forever elude her. Big, she said at last. It was big. A big word, he asked. No she said, shaking her head. Big! He looked puzzled. Do you mean dinosaurs? Yes! She shouted, an expression of relief on her face as the missing word finally appeared. We don't have dinosaurs, he said. They're unique to Earth, but we have animals that are bigger than the biggest dinosaur that ever lived. One of them is so big, so huge, that he has no natural predators. And because nothing can hurt him, and he has no reason to hide, he glows in the dark. All night long, she asked with a giggle. Can't he turn off the glow so he can sleep? He doesn't have to, said Philip, as if speaking to a child, which in a way she was. Since he's glowed all his life... It doesn't bother him or keep him awake. What color is he? asked Julia. When he's hungry, he glows a deep red. When he's angry, he's blue. Finally, he smiled, and when he wants to attract a lady friend, he becomes the brightest yellow you ever saw and pulsates like crazy, almost like a 50-foot-high flashbulb going off every other second. Oh, I... "'Wish I could see him,' said Julia, 
It must be a wonderful place, this world you live on. I think so, he looked over at me. Not everybody does. I would give everything I have to go there. It doesn't take quite everything, said Philip, and I tried to imagine the tone of voice he'd have used if he had still been human. Just most things. She stared at him curiously. Were you born there? No, Julia, I wasn't, he said, and somehow his face seemed to reflect an infinite sadness as he used her proper name. I was born right here, in this house. It must have been before we moved here, she said, dismissing the notion with a shrug of her narrow shoulders. But if you were born here, why are you wearing a Halloween costume? This is what people look like where I live. It must be one of the suburbs, she said with conviction. I don't remember seeing anyone like you at the supermarket or at the doctor's. It's a very distant suburb, he said. I thought so, said Julia. And your name is? Philip, he said. And for a second time that night, I saw a shining tear roll down his cheek. Philip, she repeated. Philip. That's a very nice name. I'm glad you like it. I'm sure I knew a Philip once. Suddenly she yawned. I'm getting a little tired. Would you like me to leave? he asked solicitously. Could I ask you for a favor? Anything. My father used to tell me a bedtime story when I went to sleep, said Julia. Would you tell me a fairy tale? You've never asked me for one, I blurted out. You don't know any, she replied. I had to admit she was right. I'll be happy to, said Philip. Shall we lower the light a little, just in case you fall asleep? She nodded, spread out her pillows, and laid her head back on one of them. He reached for the lamp in the wall above the nightstand the only thing I'd added to the room since he'd left. When he couldn't find a switch, I remembered that it worked by voice command and ordered it to dim itself. Then, in the same room where she had told him a fairy tale almost every night, he told one to her. Once there was a young man, he began. No, said Julia. He stopped and looked at her curiously. If this is a fairy tale... It has to be a prince. You're right, of course. Once there was a prince, she nodded her approval. That's better. Then, what was his name? What do you think his name was? Prince Philip, said Julia. You're absolutely right, he replied. Once there was a prince named Philip... He was a very well-behaved young man and tried always to do the bidding of the king and queen. He studied chivalry and jousting and any number of princely things. But when his classes were done and his weapons were polished and put away and he'd finished his dinner, he would go to his room and read about fabulous places like Oz and Wonderland. He knew that such places couldn't exist, but he wished they could, and every time he found a book or a holo about a new one, he would read it 
or watch it and wish that somehow, someday, he could visit such places. I know just how he felt, said Julia with a happy smile on the wrinkled face that I still loved. Wouldn't it be wonderful to walk along the yellow brick road with the scarecrow and the tin man, or to have a conversation with the Cheshire cat, or visit the walrus and the carpenter? That's what Prince Philip thought, too, he agreed. He leaned forward dramatically, and then one day he made a wonderful discovery. She sat up and clapped her hands together in her excitement. He learned how to get to Oz. Not Oz, but an even more wonderful place. She leaned back, suddenly tired from her efforts. I'm very glad. Is that the end? He shook his head. No, it isn't. Because, you see, nobody in this place looked like the prince or his parents. He couldn't understand the people who lived there, and they couldn't understand him, and they were afraid of anyone who looked and sounded different. Most people are, she said sleepily, her eyes closed. Did he wear a Halloween costume, too? Yes, said Philip, but it was a very special costume. Oh, she said, opening her eyes again. How? Once he put it on, he could never take it off again, explained Philip. A magic costume, she exclaimed. Yes, but it meant that he could never be the king of his parents' country, and his father the king was very, very angry at him, but he knew he would never have another chance to visit such a wonderful kingdom again. So he donned the costume, and he left his palace and went to live in the magical kingdom. Was the costume uncomfortable to put on, she asked, her voice very briefly more alert than it had been. Very, he answered, which was something I'd never thought about before. But he never complained because he never doubted that it was worth it, and he went to this magical land and he saw a thousand strange and beautiful things. Every day there was a new wonder, every night a new vision. And he lived happily ever after, asked Julia. So far. And did he marry a beautiful princess? Not yet, said Philip. But he has hopes. I think that's a beautiful fairy tale, she said. Thank you, Julia. You can call me mother, she said, her voice sharp and cogent. You were right to go. She turned to me, and somehow I could tell it was the old Julia, the real Julia, looking at me. And you had better make peace with your son. And as quickly as she said it, the old Julia vanished, as she did so often these days. And she was once again the Julia I'd grown used to for the past year. She lay back on the pillow and looked at our son once more. I've forgotten your name, she said apologetically. Philip. Philip, she repeated. What a nice name. A pause. Is it Halloween? Before he could answer, she was asleep. He leaned over and kissed her on the cheek with his misshapen lips, then stood up and walked to the door. I'll leave now, he said as I followed him out of her room. Not yet, I said. He stared at me expectantly. Come on into the kitchen, 
I said. He followed me down the shabby hallway, and when we got there, I pulled out a couple of beers, popped them open, and poured two glasses. Did it hurt that much? I asked. He shrugged. It's over and done with. There really are crystal mountains? He nodded. And flowers that talk? Yes. Come into the living room with me, I said, heading out of the kitchen. When we got there, I sat in an easy chair and gestured for him to sit down on the sofa. What is this about, he asked. Was it really that special, I asked. That much of an honor? There were more than 6,000 candidates for the position, he said. I beat them all. It must have cost them a pretty penny to make you what you are. More than you can imagine. I took a sip of my beer. Let's talk. We've talked about mother, he replied. All that's left is the pythons, and I haven't kept up with them. There's more. Oh? Tell me about Wonderland, I said. He stayed for three days, slept in the long, unused guest room, and then he had to go back. He invited me to come visit him, and I promised I would. But of course I can't leave Julia, and by the time she's gone I'll probably be too old and a little too infirm. And it's a long, grueling, expensive trip. But it's comforting to know that if I ever do find a way to get there... I'll be greeted by a loving son who can show his old man around the place and point out all the sights to him. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Mike Resnick's. I'll put a link on to Asimov's as well so you can go over there and, like I say, it was picked up by Sheila Williams and just Sheila Williams has just got the kind of touch when it comes to picking cracking stories. Sheila, Mike, thank you so much. Next is Cheap Skates. Adam, sir. Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers on the Starship Sofa. My name is Adam, welcoming you to another edition of Cheap Skates, bringing you the best in free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. Yeah, I changed the name to fit with how Tony's been posting this feature Cheap Skates rather than the Cheap Skate Review. I've decided to run with it. It's pithier and easier to remember. So, yeah, welcome to Cheapskates. In the first episodes of Cheapskates, I reviewed free ebooks for you. But an e reader is not how I got my start delving into the realm of the free. While e readers are just recently starting to come into a price range palatable to a cheapskate, MP3 players have been around a lot longer, and so have gotten cheap much faster as well. If you're curious what player runs out of my pocket, I'll be glad to share. You can be sure it's not any version of an iPod. Cheapskate, remember? Instead, I've been partial to the SanDisk Sansa series. My current player is a heavy monster of a device, a Sansa E260 that I bought for just about $40 and that the company considered a legacy product from the moment I took it out of the box. I like that the Sanses are compatible with microSD cards to instantly expand their storage space. These are tiny little storage cards, just a few millimeters thick, and about the size of the fingernail on my little finger. But they boast storage capacity of between 1 and 32 gigabytes for a minuscule cost, 
my four gigabyte card cost me about ten dollars and doubled my storage capacity. I also like that Sansa's will save your place in a long audiobook or podcast. <clears throat> Starship sofa. <clears throat> and has an easy scroll wheel to scan to your place if you happen to lose your spot. But the biggest factor is durability. It has a solid metal backplate, which holds up to children and Butterfingers, both concerns in my house. There have also been several times that I thought it was toast because it wouldn't turn on, but I was able to unscrew the back, it's actually meant to do this, remove the battery, and pop it back in for a hard restart that got it working again. I don't want to jinx it, but this little baby's been working for a year and a half and still going strong. Anyway, if you've got yourself a cheapskate-worthy MP3 player, the next step is to find some of the great free science fiction audio available out there. Podcasts are, of course, a logical first place for this. In addition to the sofa, you might want to try out Escape Pod, Lightspeed Magazine, or Clark's World. But let's say you want some actual full-length books to listen to. To start with, you have, of course, already gotten your two free audiobooks from Audible, then turned right around and canceled your subscription. As a side note, I did this to get Wise Man's Fear and Ready Player One without issue or any expense. Take advantage of the deal, but make sure to cancel right away, and choose wisely. It's a one-shot deal. After that, your next stop should be podiobooks.com that's spelled p-o-d-i-o-b-o-o-k-s dot com this site is chock full of free audiobooks as of this recording they have nearly 600 free titles comprised of more than 11,300 serialized episodes the first series I ran across on podiobooks remains one of my favorites and is the subject of my review today the golden age of the solar clipper Trader Tales by Nathan Lowell, or as I always think of them, the Share books. This is because the title of each book is another step up the pay scale on the interstellar trade ships in the books. Quarter share, half share, full share, double share, captain share, and owner share. You've probably heard Nathan as a narrator here several times on the sofa already. If so, you already have a good idea of a large part of the appeal of these audiobooks, given that Nathan narrates his own work. His voice is calm and smooth. You can feel yourself relaxing into the story from the first few moments. Quarter Share begins with a familiar first line, the same Call Me Ishmael of Moby Dick. But Lowell immediately turns it around with a casual, Yeah, I know as we enter into the first-person narrative of Ishmael Wong and are introduced to the world of the Golden Age. Ishmael starts off quarter share in a bad situation. His mother unexpectedly dead, he finds himself about to be kicked off the corporate-owned planet where she worked. Looking for a better way out, he lands a lowly quarter share berth on the Lois McKendrick, a massive solar clipper trading spaceship. The ships in the series manage to vividly evoke the classic period of sailing ships on the sea. They use solar sails to claw their way out of each system's gravity well, then make an instantaneous jump to outside the next system on the route and sail their way back in. This makes for an interesting combination of long journeys while still making interstellar travel possible within lifetimes. The first three books follow Ishmael on the Lois McKendrick 
as he rises through the ranks, changes jobs, and eventually heads off to Officer's Academy. The following three books follow him in a leadership role, as a junior officer, captain, and owner, respectively. I'm not going to go into a blow-by-blow account of six books, but they have their share of exciting moments. For example, the whole crew nearly dying when environmental systems fail, Ishmael defending himself in his first berth as an officer against a terrible ship's hostile leadership, transforming the warship in the trading fleet into the flagship as its captain, just to name a few. But the real charm and appeal of these books came not in the times of high drama, but the little moments of personal story. I found myself closely connecting with the odd importance of a quality cup of coffee, a well-fitting pair of jeans, and a large, hearty breakfast. I ended up right there with Ishmael as he cherished small mementos of affection and experienced the comfort of familiar love and loving friendship. It's these personal details and the focus on the details of a life in space trade that made it some of the most immersive and realistic science fiction I've ever had the privilege of enjoying. I think it's Lowell himself who best describes this feeling on his website. Quoting, I was tired of the save the universe stories where the hero was a king or the captain of the ship. I wanted to know what that famous red-shirted crewman did before he got sent on the away team and got killed. I wanted to think about what it would do to our vision of the universe if we sent out freighters instead of frigates, sent an airline and not an air force. As far as the character of Ishmael himself, I was closely reminded of Ender in Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game series. He's resourceful, intelligent, and driven to succeed even against impossible odds. He's essentially a peaceful and sensitive person, but will not hesitate to use force when driven to it. And I was struck by his humanity, his frustrations, and his mistakes. In another part of his website, Nathan compares Ishmael to the heroes in the science fiction of his youth. Quoting again, One of the things that always bugged me about these stories was the larger-than-life hero, he says. Every stinking one of them is some rich, powerful, or otherwise advantaged individual, and, almost inevitably, it's their money, position, or power that either saves them or dooms them to follow whatever path the story takes. That's all well and good. The powerful hero, even the lost prince of Luke Skywalker type, is an enduring archetype. It's great escapist fun to put yourself into the shoes of the great and powerful. But I've always wanted a hero that was more like me. Kind of slow, self-doubting, and, above all, fallible in ways that are closer to toilet paper stuck to my shoe than unable to coordinate galactic takeovers with star-crossed romance. So, for once, the hero isn't the captain of the ship. He's not even an officer. He's a broke, uneducated orphan from a backwater planet at the edge of nowhere. He's not a hidden prince, and he wasn't adopted. He's just an average Joe trying to make it in the universe when his mother is killed in a mindless accident, and he's suddenly left to his own devices. I find this description touching in a way that few works of science fiction have gotten to me. We are Ishmael and he is us. I have only one major item of critiques of the books. That's the ending in Owner's Share. 
an ending which all of the audiobooks commentators gamely agree, by Nathan's request, to refer to as Article 37. I'll do the same here. The problem I had with ending the series with Article 37, like Nathan does, is that it's out of keeping with the atmosphere that charmed me throughout the other five books, comfort and wonder at life and the universe. Article 37 came out of nowhere and left me feeling aching and betrayed, even more so by Ishmael's response to it. As I commented on the boards at the time, as a writer, I can understand doing Article 37 to your characters. Heck, I've done it plenty of times. It's interesting and dramatic, and you certainly did it well. But it also feels, I don't know, out of character for the series. The thing about the Share series was that there wasn't much Article 37, and it felt very real, in an everyday sort of way. Of course, I suppose that's the way Article 37 happens. You're happy. Feeling good and out of the blue. Wham! Article 37. Still, it's a downer to see someone you identify with brought so low by Article 37. I just wanted the poor guy to be happy. And if you want to find out what Article 37 is, well, you'll just have to listen for yourself. I'm not telling. Nathan offers these stories completely free of charge, ostensibly as a lead-in to purchasing a physical or ebook copy of one of the first three books in the series. Ebook editions cost $5, and if you want to go traditional, new physical paperbacks are out there for between $11 and $14. If you listen to the audiobooks and enjoy them, the site also offers options to make a donation for whatever you think the books are worth to you, with the author getting a significant cut of that. I think you'll agree with the Patio Books Founders' Choice Awards and the slew of Parsec Awards for speculative fiction podcasting that Nathan's work is well worth supporting. Well, that's all for this episode of Cheapskates. The music is by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution license. This is Adam reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go. Now, what I'm going to do now is just play the first 10 minutes of Quarter Share by Nathan Lowell. I'll put a link on the Nathan site. Go over there. There's every way, well, he'll tell you there where you can get the books if you want to get them on in kind of ebook form or go over on Amazon and buy them as well. Nathan, this is just, like I say, delightful. Listening to episode one of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter one, Neris, 2351, August 13. Call me Ishmael. Yeah, I know, but in this case, it's really my name. Ishmael Horatio Huang. My parents had an unfortunate sense of humor, but had they known what I'd wind up doing with my life, they might have picked a different name. Richard Henry Dana, perhaps. 
Why they picked Ishmael Horatio is a long and not terribly interesting story that begins with my mother was an ancient lit professor and it ends with my being saddled with these non-sequitur monikers. That story was over 18 stanniers before the two nearest company security people showed up at my door with long faces and low voices. Perhaps it was their expression, and perhaps it was that they were looking for me and not Mom, but I knew it wasn't good. I was pretty sure they hadn't come to drag me away. I'd never been a troublemaker, not like some of the other kids in the university enclave. They had come for me, though, to tell me she was dead. It was a sort of an unreal kind of kick-in-the-gut feeling. I knew they were telling me the truth, but I couldn't quite grasp it. Flitter crash, the tall one said. It happens. Not a lot, but enough. You know it can happen, but it always happens to somebody else. It wasn't even her flitter, but Randy's, her boyfriend. He was dead, too, the short one said. They spoke to me gently, and their voices just washed past me. Nothing really seemed to stick. They finally left me alone. Eighteen Stanyers was old enough to live on your own on Nerys. I wasn't taken to Juvie Hall or put into foster care or anything. That night I just kept walking from room to room. I woke up sprawled on the couch next morning, but I didn't even remember sitting down. As bad as that night had been, morning brought something worse. Lawyers. First the plantation lawyers showed up and notified me they were suing the estate for the damages to the Granapple vineyards where the flitter had crashed. "'We're sorry, Mr. Huang,' the lawyer said, although she didn't sound it. "'Mr. Lawrence had inadequate insurance on the vehicle to cover this kind of damage. "'In order to protect our client's interests, we have filed liens to recover appropriate damages.' "'I stared at her and asked, so why are you here?' "'She wouldn't look me in the eye when she said, "'We are in the unenviable position of placing liens against the estates of both parties involved in the crash, "'since there's no way to determine who'd been driving.' The flitter came apart in midair, you see. The falling debris and um, remains damaged an estimated square kilometer of vines. That was more detail than I needed at the moment. Next, a company lawyer showed up with the eviction notice. I'll give them their due. They were very sympathetic. Mom was, had been, a Nerys company employee, a member of the faculty at the University of Nerys, but... Mom was dead, which meant I had ninety days to become employed by Nerys Company or leave the planet. Survivor benefits only applied if you were killed on the job. Dying on your day off didn't count. In the middle of the afternoon, an email from Nerys Company's Human Resources Department arrived to let me know that there were no jobs on Nerys for unskilled labor. As a company planet, of course, they were the only employer of record. So thank you very much, Nerys Company. The last bad news of the day came from the family solicitor assigned by Nair's company. He showed up at my door in the late afternoon wearing a bad suit and a tie with soup stains on it. Mr. Wong, he began, after we'd settled at the kitchen table, I'm so sorry for your loss. This one of all my visitors that day seemed to mean it. I don't want to take up more of your time than necessary, but you need to know where you stand with your late mother's estate. I nodded for him to go on. There isn't one, he said simply. You may know that, as a faculty member, she didn't earn a great deal, and while it allowed you to both live relatively comfortably here on Nairs, it didn't generate a lot of surplus. He was almost apologetic. I almost felt sorry for him. 
He took out the paperwork then, her life insurance and will, and the settlement forms from the vineyard liens, and we spent the next half-stand going through them on a sign-here and here and here days. Last, I had to sign off on the insurance payout forms in order to get the check. The payout had already been calculated based on the plantation claims and funeral costs. The nearest company people were efficient, I had to admit. Barely a day, and here they were with a check. The check would cover my rent for ninety days. I could accept it and settle up, or I could fight it and be tied up in probate court with nearest company judges and nearest company lawyers for the next nearest company year. Company planets suck. I signed, but what choice did I have? Three days later, a courier brought the urn with her ashes in it to the door. I didn't ask who or how, when or where. I just sat her on the coffee table. She liked coffee, and we'd spent a lot of time sitting at that table with our feet on it, sharing coffee and telling stories. And that was it. Nobody else showed up at the door. Not my mates from the Enclave, not company people, not Mom's colleagues from the university. Nobody. To be fair, I didn't have a lot of friends to begin with. I'd read about best friends in novels and such, but I'd never actually had one. Angela Markova was the closest when I was a kid, but she left Planet when her father took a job with another company at the end of fifth form. I'd never really found anybody else to take her place. It was something about being booted off Planet, too, that made you instant pariah. Don't add water. I'd seen it before with people who'd run foul of Nara's company. I could even understand why none of the people I normally hung around with came to offer condolences. Within ninety days I'd have to be gone, and nobody wanted to be associated with me. For a week I just went through the motions from day to day. Eventually the voice in my head stopped saying, I can't believe she's dead, and shifted to, Now what am I going to do? Mom and I had been on Neris, alone, if you didn't count the Randys and the Davids and the occasional Dorises, for most of my life. Dad was somewhere over in the Diurnia Quadrant. He'd never been a big influence in my life, and I didn't even know what system he was in, let alone his address. I'd planned to start university in the fall. Growing up with a professor, attending university wasn't ever optional, it was a given. We'd had several long, occasionally heated, discussions on the subject. I really hadn't wanted to make a decision about what to do with the rest of my life with so much of it, theoretically, left ahead of me. Over time, I'd come to think that there might be some value in getting a degree in plant biology, perhaps. Or at least in agreeing to go, to get her to stop bugging me about it. Because Neris is a company planet, enrollment at the University of Neris was restricted to company families. In spite of that, the University of Neris had one of the best biology departments in the quadrant. Close association with a planet full of granapple vines and the related corporate incentives had something to do with it, no doubt. So attending the U of N had seemed like a good option. I just didn't know what to do with myself when that option expired. By the end of that first week, it became clear that I had a serious problem. Passage off planet cost more than I had. A lot more. Several kilocreds more. I couldn't afford to buy passage off the planet, and I wasn't going to be allowed to stay. The nearest company people would repatriate me out to the nearest non-company system, Siren. But they would charge me for the ticket, and I'd start my new life very deeply in debt. What I needed was a job that would pay my way off planet. Unfortunately, I knew only too well that my options were limited to the military or the merchant vessels that visited Nares periodically. 
There was a galactic marine recruiting office even on Neris, and a lot of kids I knew took that option to get out from underneath the company, but I also knew I was never going to be a marine. All that killing people and dying stuff just never appealed to me. That left the Union Hall at Narisport. I have to confess, I really didn't want to go there either, but when you're out of options, you take what's left. Next morning, I screwed up my nerve and trammed over to Narisport. It was one of those perfect, bright, warm days, with soft breezes carrying the spicy, tart smell of grand apples out of the vineyards and into every corner of the town. It wasn't overpowering, but it covered even the hot circuit board smell of the tram. It made the world seem way too cheerful and pleasant. I hated it. The Union Hall was really nothing more than a refurbished hangar. It was cavernous inside and seemed empty except for a row of data terminals and a long counter with about five positions, only one of which seemed to be in use. Besides the functionary behind the counter, a grizzled and slightly scary-looking older femme with an artificial arm, I was the only person there. When I stepped in out of the sun-dazzle, the hall seemed cool and dark and smelled faintly of an institutional-grade floor wax. It took my eyes a few seconds to adjust to the light level, and by then the functionary was looking at me expectantly. "'What do you want, kid?' she asked, her voice echoing around the hall. I crossed her position at the counter, noted her name tab, said O'Rourke, and smiled tentatively at her. "'I need to get off planet,' I said. "'Son, this is the hiring hall. The ticket office is down the lane a bit. Just keep going. You can't miss it.' She smiled, a bit nastily, I thought at the time. I tried again. "'I can't afford a ticket. I need a job that'll take me off planet.' O'Rourke stared hard at me. "'You need a lot more than that, I'm thinking.' Are you looking to hire onto a ship? I just nodded dumbly. She asked, You ever signed the articles before, kid? I could hear the capital letters in the articles as she spoke the words, and I just shook my head. O'Rourke rubbed the back of her neck with her good hand and cast a why-me look at the ceiling. Finally she sighed and said, Okay, kid. Everybody has a story. Tell me yours. I wasn't sure how much to tell her, so I did just a rough outline. I was supposed to start university next semester. My mom is, or was, a professor there. But she died in a flutter crash, and now the company says I have to get off planet because she's no longer employed and I'm no longer a dependent. O'Rourke stared for a moment, but something in her face changed. Okay, kid, good story. Where's your card? I pulled out my data card and slotted it into her reader. My particulars popped up on the display. O'Rourke looked over the data, scrolling and tisking. She only looked at the date of birth and education level before starting to shake her head. Forget it, kid, she said, not unkindly, but without looking at me. No specialty, and you're only just 18. Technically, I can offer you the articles, but there's no open berths for quarter shares at the moment. <laughs> And there you go. Don't forget, as as usual, copyright is Nathan's. Like Adam, just loved it. Do you know what I mean? And it was, I think what Adam got right, it's the little detail, the little things of getting lost in kind of making coffees and, you know, all that. Just the the, the gentle little things of, of space. You know, I'm, I'm not like, it was really nice. Like, you're not into this kind of massive, you know, world explosions, you know, conquering and everything like that. It's just... Basically, their life on board at one of these trader vessels. And that's what I really loved. You know what I mean? It was just 
totally got you know engrossed and lost in that book and half a one you know I've kind of gobbled I would not gobble down some more but I've certainly got them there on my Kindle ready to go so that is Starship Sofa's show 234 I do hope you've enjoyed it don't forget if you want, you know, drop word donation. That's always fantastic. Keeps this gold girl going. Go to the front of the website. You'll see there where you can sign up for monthly donations. Really appreciate that. And, you know, thank you just for being there again. Thank you so much. Until next week, just like to say, good day from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A ventilation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.